0: I'm Sylvia Burgos-Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown, because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. I first came across the name of Ben Hewitt. Jeepers, it's got close to be close to seven years ago, six, seven years ago, when I picked up a book by the name of The Town That Food Saved. Now, this was a very intriguing title for me because at that time, my husband... Dave and I were just a year into raising our own 100% grass-fed beef in a small community in Wisconsin that was trying to reestablish, reinvent local food systems. Well, since that time, this book, written by Ben Hewitt, has been uh, used as a springboard, a starting point for so many communities all across this country trying to re-establish local food ties, Uh, the farmers, the land, nutrition, restoring and protecting our groundwater, and actually trying to rebuild thriving communities. Here we are a few years later, and in my town of Amory, Wisconsin, we will be welcoming Ben Hewitt to talk to us and share an organic meal. Ben, how are you?
1: I'm great, how are you, Sylvia?
0: Doing really, really well. Well, Ben, you know, it sounds as if, Your books, and there are several of them that you've written, it's not only The Town That Food Saved, but boy, the other titles really tell us about, I think, your philosophy. The other one is Making Supper Safe, One Man's Quest to Learn the Truth About Food Safety, and another one called Homegrown. And that's about parenting, because you and your wife have really made some big decisions on that. Then there is your newest book, and that'll be a lot of the topic for this upcoming event in Amory, Wisconsin on November 10th. And that is The Nourishing Homestead, one back-to-the-land family's plan for cultivating soil, skills, and spirit. Ben, why homesteading?
1: Oh, that's a great and and big question that I could probably um, expound on for uh, the remainder of the show. Um, I guess, you know, I think why homesteading? Well, I think probably there are as many reasons as there are um, people who are doing it. And I also think there are probably as many definitions of what homesteading really is as there are people who are participating in it on some level or another. Um, I can tell you the reasons that we spend so much of our time and life energy Raising our food and engaging with the the world uh beyond the walls of our house um, and that's primarily because it's it's fulfilling for us I mean there are all sorts of tangential reasons um, we're able to produce food that we think is we believe is truly nutritive, um, some of which is not even legal for us to purchase on the open market. Um, we are able to uh, well, basically enables us to support us on a writer's income, um, which is no mean feat mm. um, in 21st century America. Um, it gives us an opportunity to spend a lot of time together as a family, which is really, really important to us. Um, we educate our children at home. That's really important to us, uh, and it really affords us the ability to do that. And so, all of this for us, you know, sort of adds up to the fact that like, when we wake up in the morning and we step outside to go do chores, we feel like we're doing something meaningful uh, and that our lives feel full and as if they, they are satisfying and have meaning to us. Uh, and I think, you know, there again, it's like I think a lot of different people raise their own food and do and, and, and participate in an aspects of homesteading for, for vastly different reasons, and they're all valid.
0: Ah, well, let me ask you this. So, so, were you a farm kid?
1: I was not a farm kid. I was a homestead kid, at least until I was about six or seven years old. I was, I was born and raised on a 165 acre homestead in northwestern Vermont, about an hour and a half from here. And um, that was a very, even much more, much more uh, rustic life than we live right now. We did not have running water, we did not have uh, electricity. Um, We had big gardens, uh, a couple of pigs. Uh, There was a hand pump that drew water from a stream. Um, But it was a very, very, very uh, rustic back-to-the-land experience, and I think in some ways it sort of wore my parents down, and there was there was mm. a point at which, and I think I think part of it was the work involved. I think part of it was that they really, my dad actually was also a writer, so just amazing. Actually, <laughs> when I step back and and look at some of the corollaries, it's a little it's a little eerie. But um, you know, they they I think at some point sort of realized that you know they wanted a, a slightly more commodious and and a life that was not. So defined by their lack of financial resources. So when Mm. I was about seven, we moved um, to another part of rural Vermont, um, about 10 miles outside of a town where my dad took a job.
0: I'm thinking that perhaps the apple hasn't fallen that far from the tree, but it sounds like your homesteading has some real significant differences from that earlier back to the land movement.
1: Well, I would say, you know, for one, we have found, I think, a somewhat different balance in terms of our adoption of contemporary technologies and and luxuries con- slash conveniences. Um, so we do, for instance, have electricity. We are extremely thrifty in, in, in our use of it, but we do have it. Um, we have running water. Um you know we have a, we we have sort of allowed ourselves uh granted ourselves a lot of the conveniences that that my at least my parents version of homesteading it, they they denied themselves during that period mm-hmm. um, and I think you know um again i I really believe this wholeheartedly that you know homesteading can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and I think I know of people who are out there right now doing it without this, without without water, without electricity, who um, seem perfectly content doing that, and that's working really well for them. Um, you know, for us, this has really enabled us to maintain a certain balance in our life, where you know we can still participate uh, in our homestead, and we do raise uh, and process about 90% of our our food on this property. Um, but we can do that without going totally crazy, I guess. You know, we still have a fairly balanced social life. We are still able to take advantage of opportunities for our kids beyond the homestead. You know, we've really tried to set up our life in such a way that it doesn't feel like we're just always working. Because I've seen that happen, too, where people get really excited about, you know, you know doing everything themselves, being entirely self-sufficient. Um, and it can be, I'm not saying it has to be, but it can be, I think, a path to burnout.
0: I get it. I mean, being stressed out physically and I guess stressed out mentally but fatigued physically um, takes its toll.
1: Not to mention emotionally, I think, and even spiritually. I mean, I I really think, you know, and and it's one thing actually I talk about a lot when I I do talk about homesteading. And, you know, I think there is this notion out here. People have this idealized notion of the self-sufficient homestead. Um, and to me, that's a little bit of a dangerous notion. I think, uh, you know, we are certainly not self-sufficient. Um, we're very, very clearly dependent, you know, not only on the utility that brings us our power and, um, you know, the the, the uh, mechanics that pump our water from our well and all of these things. We're also very, very dependent on other people in our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like to point out that that's actually really... What I think when people think about independence in terms of homesteading, I ask them to just sort of step back a little bit and maybe consider something more like interdependence um so that you know that 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 means participating uh in their in obtaining their needs not just from themselves and their land but from other people in their community and participating in a broader sort of um social community also uh because I think you know that that sort of sense of independence and being you know totally self-sufficient on the land it's really really appealing and I understand why it's so seductive but I also think it can be extremely isolating and exhausting and really in a lot of ways it's just not even possible
0: it's it's so interesting that you mention that because one of the the ideas that I just keep on having play in my head is the fact that our culture our American culture has been built uh, you know a great deal on this myth of the loner the, the totally mm-hmm. self-sufficient yes. person. You know, and it's like the right. Lone Ranger. And I've always, and I've thought for the last, I don't know, decade or so, it's time to let that Lone Ranger ride off into the, uh, into the sunset and just forget about him. Um, because we can't do it alone. And in fact, I don't believe the human spirit and the human being was made to live alone.
1: Yeah, we're, we're social animals. Um, I think it's exactly what you're saying. I think it's a myth. Um, and I think that the more we... Uh, try to isolate ourselves and become um, independent of other human beings um, ironically or maybe not ironically, maybe it makes perfect sense, but the more dependent we do become on institution and corporation to supply our needs, so really, in a lot of ways I, you know we 're trying to in some ways make ourselves more dependent on our friends and neighbors, uh, you know hopefully not to the point where you know we 're becoming a burden but and, and there is some sort of balance there, but I think you know, that kind of, but that sort of self-regulated interdependence in a community where people are accountable um, to one another and need one another and help one another, um, you know, that's really something that has been lost in the United States and in, I think, most first world countries over the last hundred years or so. And while I'm not suggesting that that's some, you know, that's the perfect I- I- ideal, I mean, I'm certainly there have always been challenges and stresses with those communal interdependent relationships Um, but I also think uh, that we've gone way too far in the other direction where we we are in many many ways isolated from one another communally uh, and that it's really damaging
0: you know it's kind of interesting because I sometimes think that we need to relearn even the skill of conversation extended conversation Mm -hmm. Because that's how people used to entertain themselves. (laughs) That's
1: right, sitting on the porch, you know, for two hours in the evening, right? But we (laughs) don't give ourselves
0: permission to do that.
1: No, or nor do we feel, most of us, I think, as if we have the time.
0: Right, right. You know, it's kind of interesting. One of the things that's mentioned in the promotion for the November 10th event is that you're going to be talking not only about nutrition and meaningful work and local food systems, but also about things like food regulations. Mhm. What is your thinking around food regulations?
1: Well, my thinking is that we um, in in a well-intentioned effort to uh, ensure that the uh, in industrial food system is is free or, or of contamination or at least the risk of contamination um at, as, as free of the risk of contamination as possible um, we have essentially created a barrier to entry a regulatory barrier to entry for small-scale food production which is inherently safer um, primarily because it is of smaller scale it is traceable um, and you know interestingly enough many of the foods that are produced on um, a more regional level are actually foods that can help us biologically uh, be more resilient to the bacteria that would make us sick. So it's sort of this unintended, some people might say intended, um, consequence of a food regulatory system that's trying to protect us from an industrial system that's sort of run amok. People sometimes accuse me of being anti-regulation. I'm not really so much anti-regulation as I am pro-transparency. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, I, th- I really strongly believe that the safest food system is a food system in which people actually have the ability to see um, how, where and how their food is produced and to make informed decisions about what they're eating um, based on what they see and know and hear uh, and smell in some cases, probably, and you know realistically that 's just that 's just not an option for the vast majority of people in this nation. I understand that i 'm not suggesting that we can wave our wand and make this happen tomorrow um, but the the more difficult we make it for small scale producers to step in to that system to to be successful um, to thrive and make you know a fair living producing really meaningful honest good, nutritive food, um, the, the more we ensure that the system continues to be unsafe, essentially, for the majority of people who um, have to, you know, are basically are subject to it, who have no other choices.
0: I guess one of the good things that we've noticed over the years is that there are more and more farmers markets all across the country because people want to know who their farmers are. They want to be able to ask questions about how did you grow this and what did you put on it or what didn't you do?
1: That's correct. And there is you know, I think I think it's it's sometimes in in all of the sort of dire news about food and health and well-being in this country. Sometimes we do lose sight of some of the good news. And there is some really good news in terms of just what you're talking about. I mean, farmers markets um, are growing uh incredibly rapidly and there is i think a real increasing awareness um unfortunately though we still have you know we live in in a country where there are just large ironically too you know the largest swaths of so-called food deserts where people have an option to buy you know have have access to to real nutritive fresh food a lot of those the largest swaths are are in the breadbasket of this country because of course we've given over almost all of that soil to growing uh, empty calories. You know, what does the food industry want to sell us? It wants to sell us sugar, water, and air. Um, and so, yep. uh, you know, hence, hence the popularity of corn, which I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners know is is most of it uh, is essentially sugar in this day and age.
0: Before we, we chatted today, I was online taking a look at your website and happened to start reading an excerpt from one of your books. It was about mm-hmm. making supper safe. Yep. And I got pulled into that story not because of data that was thrown at me but because you create you you tell a great story with wonderful characters that help to illustrate the the either the a, a solution or a problem that we're looking at in our agricultural and food system. Where does that storytelling come from?
1: Oh, I think it well, okay. I'll give you. I'll give you. Well, there's there's a number of answers here, but I'll, I'll give you the answer I think is most true. I, it comes from uh, my parents having made the decision to raise me without a television in the house. Um, and I always say this to, because I've also written quite a bit about education. Um, and interestingly, I think you know the, the subjects of food and maybe we'll be able to talk about this in more detail when I'm actually out there in person. But the subjects of food and education, I think, are are actually inextricably linked. Um, but uh, I always tell parents. I, I hear from parents a lot because I've written a book about parenting and education, um, and I, I often hear about you know what what can they do for their kids? Like what? Give me some really simple things we can do for our kids to make sure that they're really engaged with the with the natural world, to make sure you know that they that they have curiosity um, and are just you know the the full embodiment of themselves. And I say probably the best thing you can do for them is uh, to put a boot through the television Uh, Hmm. and in in this day and age it may not actually literally be a television of course everyone's got um, different devices and ways of consuming media but um, as you may well be aware the average American teenager now spends 54 hours a week in front of a screen and um, I'm no Luddite I mean we have a computer in our house Um, we have a cell phone I mean there's You know these technologies are here they're part of our lives uh in in some ways for better i think um but i think also in a lot of ways for worse uh, and i think that we have um gotten largely as a culture to the place where it's almost as if we are in service to these devices more than these devices are in service to us if that makes any sense
0: Mm -hmm. yeah they're they're very seductive and they're very habit forming um, they
1: are very seductive in habit forming, and they're also where we get a lot of our messaging about food and other um uh, and other sort of messages about um how to be and act and uh look uh in in this day and age um and I think so not only are they seductive uh in in their sort of ability to uh, capture our attention um they're also really seductive in the ways um we come; they they come to define how we look at ourselves, not just how we look at the world around us. So
0: with the books that you have written to date, and that connection that you make um, between quality of life and quality of food, could you kind of help make that linkage a little bit more firm?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I think we can make it in a, in a number of different ways. I mean, certainly there's, you know, the, perhaps the easiest way and most obvious way to make it is in, um, you know, quality of, of our physical health in relation to the food we're putting into our body. And, you know, obviously, I think probably most of your listeners are well aware that we have a physical health crisis in this nation when we have the CDC predicting uh, a 50 percent rise in diabetes um hmm. or i'm sorry it's, uh one in three americans will have diabetes by the year 2050 is what they're predicting Jeez. um you know we we can see all the numbers on obesity and the rise and all of these different physical metrics of um our are our, our, these metrics of our physical well-being um but i think honestly i think it goes a lot deeper than that and i think um i i've often said that i feel as if the local food movement um, and this desire that people have to become more connected to their food, you know, it's not really just about becoming connected to food. I really feel as if it's this desire to become more connected to community, um, to be more connected to the land, um, and in some ways I think even uh, to become more connected to themselves. Um, and I think, you know, that, that we live in a society of uh, tremendous, where there's tremendous convenience, um, and, and, you know, quote-unquote high uh, standard of living, uh, you know, for the, for the majority of us, even though many of us still struggle, obviously, but that overall the high, we, have, we, live a, we have a very high standard of living with a lot of convenience, um, but that for a lot of us it doesn't necessarily add up to a really meaningful life. Um, and I think, you know, that, hot, that not just, you know, consuming high-quality food but participating in the system in which high-quality food uh, is is produced in a way that uh, offers reverence not just to the human community, but to the non-human um, community and population, you know, that is going to nurture more than our physical beings.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, then, if this kind of rings true for you. Part of the mission of, of uh, my farm, of my husband Dave and my farm, is to get people on the farm. So... Mm-hmm. We have uh, customers all over the the twin cities and locally, and many of them choose to come and pick up their beef order on the farm, which is what we're hoping for because we we then take them out. We walk our pastures with them for an hour or two so that they can see what it is that we do. and, And just as importantly, so that we can hear their journey. Hear what they yeah, are searching for, right. and one right. of the one of the things I've noticed is that for the first twenty minutes there's a lot of chatter, you know. And sometimes mm-hmm. we're I'm dealing with a single new friend that's come on, and sometimes I'm talking to four or five people, and after about twenty minutes the conversation stops, and they just look, and they just breathe, mm-hmm. and they stop. And it's as if all of those internal systems have finally slowed down enough to relax and to truly appreciate the present moment. It's not just about our farm. It's really about, it could be any farm, but but taking that time to just be and to Mm -hmm. be in a place that seems to connect with the values. It's almost like they're affected by... By the farm from the feet up.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know what you're describing um, are the symptoms of someone connecting to something much larger than themselves, Mm. right? And and sort of you know you're bearing witness to that, and that I suspect is that experience, although. Perhaps you know that the, there's they don't know exactly how to how to articulate that. Mm-hmm. You know, I certainly don't always know exactly how to articulate my connection to our animals or this piece of land. Sometimes I really struggle with those words myself. Um, but I suspect that's what you're witnessing in those moments.
0: It, it's one of the most satisfying and rewarding things. That I That's find. right, and
1: it really has nothing to do with them. I mean, it does at some level, they're they're probably going to buy some beef and take it home and and and, you know, eat it. Um, but you know, what's really interesting is that at that moment, they have yet to even consume any of the food you're producing. And yet they are still being nourished.
0: What do you mean by that when you when you're talking about, you know, your family being back to the land, homesteading? and skill building.
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the things that is really challenging when we think about people, you know, whether they're they're wanting to sort of you know homestead or they want to sort of dip their toes in growing food for other people uh, and having maybe a market garden or whether they just want to participate in some aspect maybe they want to keep their job in the city you know mm-hmm. but they but they they wanna they want to figure out how to be part of this system and in, in uh... On a, you know they want to compost their food scraps they wanna you know they just want to do something for themselves that makes them feel a little bit more connected um, and i think what's happened you know very steadily over the last hundred years uh, is that the is that that sort of knowledge um, and that skills base uh, has eroded? The author uh, Daniel Quinn and I think others have used this term too, sort of call it the Great Forgetting. Um, and so a lot of the a lot of the skills and knowledge that was once commonplace uh, has has really been eroded over the last hundred, particularly the last hundred years or so since the Industrial Revolution um, has picked up steam. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the, the most important things we can do is just what you're talking about by inviting people out to your farm, which is, you know, for those those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to participate in this experience, these skills, and this experience on a day-to-day basis, I think um, – in some ways have an obligation to try to share that experience with those who are interested, uh, either to invite them to to at least, even if it's just, you know, to come and and see what it looks like and smells like and sounds like. Um, And if there, you know, if there are opportunities to to actually spread some of these skills that enable people to participate more vitally in their community, I mean, that's all the better.
0: Mm. All right. Well, then as we wrap up here, If someone is thinking of homesteading if they're thinking about becoming more self-sustaining having that tie to nutrition in the land and capability building their capabilities what would be your advice to them
1: oh mercy so I mean so much of that would depend on where they're starting from Mm. Um, and I do you know I do hear from people um, you know who who are from all walks of life, people who are who are living in dense urban centers and in corporate jobs, and saying I want out, I want out. I need your advice to you know people who are living in rural environments on a small piece of land and just don't know how to get started. One thing I guess I will say that has um, certainly uh, made things a lot easier for us, I think, or or uh, really increased the quality our quality of life over the years. Um, is that we have been, I think, patient and taking things slow. And mm. um, and in some ways, we've been forced to do this by our own personal financial situation. And there are times when I have to admit I have definitely chomped at the bit uh, and really, really chafed against those, those limitations. Um, but that patience and sort of taking things slow um, – I I has I think been one of the reasons we have been able to do this for so long without feeling burned out without feeling as if it's a burden to us has really allowed us to um you know feel like this work is joyful and and meaningful for us and I, and you know again I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. Of course there are days when, you know, I don't really feel like oh, when it's 38 degrees and pouring rain, do I really feel like going <laughs> outside and doing chores? Of course I don't. But am I ever sorry that I had to by the time I come back indoors? No, I'm not. I'm always grateful that, you know, I have that responsibility to the animals under my care, that it pulls me out the door um, and and it, it's, it's always worth the time and trouble um, but, I, but, you know, to get back to that point, it's just like, you know, just take it slow, be patient, be patient with yourself, um, you know, if, if you are under financial constraints, and this is something I hear about a lot, which is, of course, you know, land has not gotten any cheaper, um, in some ways, um, financially, it's just gotten more and more difficult to, to establish a homestead, you know, um, if, if you can be patient with that, and let it unfold, um, and just sort of... Uh, you know, allow yourself to feel your way into it, I think that it will be a more rewarding relationship for you in the long term.
0: Where can people go to find out more about your journey and your books?
1: Oh, that's easy. Uh, You can go to my website, which is benhewitt.net.
0: Thank you very much, Ben Hewitt. I look forward to your coming uh, to Amory, November 10th.
1: Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Sylvia.
0: Okay, bye-bye. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.